Good morning, everybody. Okay, let's try that again. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. morning. So good to be with all of you. And welcome to everybody online. Can we just give a warm welcome for all of us joining on live stream? So great for you to be with us. If you're brand new with us, my name is Aaron Stern. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, before I jump into my message to tail, uh, dovetail off of Grant and City Groups and all of that, um, specifically I want to highlight next Sunday night, uh, the 18th, uh, is Young Adults MCYA. And so if you're a college student or 20-something, we'd love to see you here, free food. Uh, we're going to have a, a conversation and some questions and answers. And uh, so bring your friends, bring your questions, and bring your appetites. It's going to be a great day. So uh, I remember when I was in uh, uh, elementary school and for a science project, we had to come up with some sort of experiment. And, you know, of course, this is the time when most people make volcanoes, you know. I decided I don't want to do that. And so I was like, what am I going to do? I think uh, that I want to do something unique. So we were on our way. uh, I was in a carpool and it wasn't my mom that was driving that particular day. But uh, and and, and so the the driver asked, like, "What, what are you guys thinking for your for your science experiments. And so, you know, volcano, whatever. What about you, Aaron? Well, I was, I'm not sure. I was just thinking of going underneath the sink in the kitchen and, you know, mixing some different things together. And I thought, you know, maybe like bleach and, uh, you know, uh, 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 dishwater detergent, just see what happens. She's like, not so fast. <laughs> That's really dangerous. And she was right. I actually went home and looked and it said, do not mix with, and it was the things I was going to mix. Because And it would produce a, a gas that would be harmful uh, and maybe even deadly. So um, I appreciated that. A few uh, years ago, uh, one of my boys was 12, and he had committed his undying love to a girl and said, Dad, I'm going to marry her. And I said, not so fast. <laughs> not so fast is the, is the title of our series as we start Matthew chapter 7. We're in a series going through Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, as we go into chapter 7, there's this general theme of Jesus saying, hey, 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 not so fast. You need more discernment in this area. Or, hey, not so fast. You're going the wrong direction. And so we start today in Matthew 7, starting in verse 1, where he says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, Jesus says. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So, as you can probably imagine, this text isn't very relevant to us today. (laughs) Or maybe very relevant to every single one of us in the room. Jesus is talking about ways that we try to manage and control others through judgment, which hinders us from becoming people of love. It's very relevant not just to us in our individual lives, but in our culture at large, where condemnation and judgment has actually become pretty normal. Look at the comments section of somebody's Facebook posts. Uh, We have cancel culture, and we have judge or be judged. 
And we have the idea that if I disagree with you, you hate me and I hate you. Or maybe you've heard the phrase, you can't judge me. You don't know me, which can be used as a way to do whatever we want to do. I would, I would guess that if I were to ask for a, a show of hands for somebody who would say, yeah, I think this type of thing might apply to me, that a large number of hands would go up in the room, including mine. We can be quick to judge. And it's not just a 2022 thing. I think it's a human thing. Dale Bruner theologian says we as humans have a propensity to undervalue our own faults and failures while overvaluing the faults and failures of other people. And if I can, I'd add to that and feel the need to point them out. Now you might say, well, Aaron, isn't there a place for judgment? I mean, what about a courtroom? Those are judgments that are made. What about standards to say like, well, what's right and what's wrong, and therefore to make judgments according to right or wrong? Or what about Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he actually encourages us to judge others in the church? Good questions, but it, is, it boils down to the difference in meaning of the word judge. In the first century, the Greek word for judge had two meanings. The first one is to judge, to discern between things. So this would be like saying, she is tall, he is short. That is just a statement of reality. Then the second type of judge, which Jesus is referring to here in this passage, is to sit in a place of superiority and to condemn, and therefore play God. Now, Jesus uses the word hypocrite in this passage. When he uses the word hypocrite, he's referring to in what would have been known in the first century as an actor. So if somebody was an actor in a play, they would have been known as a hypocrite. It didn't have a negative connotation. Jesus is the one who adds the negative connotation because what he's saying is you're acting like somebody who you're not. So Jesus is saying when you sit in the seat of judgment, you're acting like someone you're not. You're not God. This would be like saying, those who are tall are better than those who are short. So this type of judgment devalues a person and or a group of people and diminishes their worth, marring the image of God in them. It can be obvious, like racism or name-calling or judgment and condemnation or hate towards a hurtful person. Or it can be subtle. Judgment couched in sarcasm, or bookended with just kidding, or if you're from the South, bless your heart. <laughs> it can also look like thinking less of those who hold a different theological or a different political or a different religious belief than you. And so what we end up doing is being judgmental towards the judgmental. And we are quick to call them enemies and reluctant to love them as a neighbor. And so we justify judgment by thinking it's okay to judge as long as we're condemning the right people. Now it's easy to see out there, oh yeah, I don't want to judge out there, but we sometimes miss how it applies into our very own homes and neighborhoods and workplaces and the ways that we might judge our own kids, our parents, our siblings, our roommates, our neighbor across the street. But Scripture and Jesus 
in particular, never gives permission, never gives permission to dehumanize another person, no matter how they act, no matter what they've done to you or to anyone else. Judgment is when we call out wrongdoing without loving the person. Judgment is driven by self-righteousness and contempt. Judgment deals in absolutes and leaves no room for grace. Assumes motives and always assumes that they're bad. Condemnation produces shame in another person. The sense that they are a failure just for who they are. Jesus' goal for people was never shame. It was always redemption. You might just say, well, I'm just trying to help. I mean, they need to know they're wrong. Condemnation as a strategy for helping will always fail. The Scripture says that it is God's kindness that leads to repentance, not God's condemnation that leads to repentance. It is rare that others are changed by the judgments of another person. Can you think of a time when you have felt judged? Has it motivated you to change? So the question maybe that I'd like to to jump into is why do we judge? Judgment is fueled by four things. Number one, insecurity. We tear, each other, tear someone else down when we feel bad about ourselves, kind of to level the playing field in some form or another. It's driven by comparison and self-contempt. But it never works. Studies by psychologists have shown that when you judge someone, you actually feel worse about yourself. Greg Boyd, pastor and author, says, It is impossible to love and judge at the same time. Because it's impossible to ascribe unsurpassable worth to others when you're using others to ascribe worth to yourself. We also judge out of fear. An attempt to feel safe. We're afraid maybe of of, uh, an authority. Or maybe we're afraid of getting hurt again. So in order to protect ourselves, we keep people at a distance through judgment. Or maybe... Judgment is fueled by loneliness for you. The desire to connect, so you connect over negativity and judgment, mockery, gossip, or jealousy. Seeking or desiring a change. It's like the the person who uh, wants to be engaged, and then your close friend gets engaged, and you're like, well, he's an idiot. (laughs) Right? Like, actually, you're just jealous that you wish that you were her or him, and you were the one getting engaged. Jesus' language in this particular passage is very strong. It is not a suggestion. He's not like, you know, if you get around to it, if you think about it, it's not that big of a deal. I'm sure this doesn't apply to many of you, but if you want to, no, this is a command. Like, do not. And the reason he is so strong in his language is because he knows how dangerous judgment is. It is just dangerous to ourselves and to the person being judged. And he says that judgment will bounce back at you at the same force at which you deliver it. You better watch out, is what he's saying. Judgment will also steal your joy. Because judgment cuts us off from the goodness and the power of the kingdom of God. Jackie Hill Perry, author says you will rarely meet a joyful, self-righteous person. You can't carry your own burdens, walk in that amount of pride, be critical of everybody and their mama, 
and expect to be happy. Judgment will also quench the Spirit of God in your life. And the reason is because of what Jesus says where you're playing God. You're a hypocrite. You're acting like God. When we act like God, we push God out of the way. But when we put ourselves in the right place and let God be God, then we are in a place where we'll experience the presence and the flow of of God in our lives. So maybe the question If you're here today and you feel like, man, I I feel far from God. I have not sensed His presence in any, any sense of the word. That maybe a place to look is to evaluate whether or not there's judgment and contempt that resides in you. And then finally, the reason that Jesus says it's so dangerous is that judgment destroys community. It does not strengthen it even if we're trying to connect through it. It actually weakens it. Everyone ends up hurting when judgment takes place, both the judger and the one being judged. Community does not end up being more unified. It ends up becoming more divisive. So Jesus says, instead of living in a place of condemnation and superiority and judgment, trying to take that little tiny speck of sawdust out of somebody's eye, first, take the plank out of your own eye. You're trying to go for that little tiny piece of sawdust right there when you're whole when you got a plank sticking out of your eye just like this. And can you imagine if I'm trying to get out of an eyeball a little speck and I'm try, trying I can't quite get there and I can't quite see it to be able that is not going to do well for the person <laughs> Or you. And you've got millions of pieces of sawdust right here. And you're going for the little tiny one right there. So what does Jesus say when we fall into a place of judgment? What does he call us to? He calls us to practice self-awareness, not self-righteousness. Maybe you've heard it said before, love the sinner, hate the sin. Jesus says love the sinner and hate your own sin. He's not saying there isn't a piece of sawdust in that person's eye. He doesn't say, oh, you're missing it. That's not true. Don't worry about it. It's actually not anything that he says. He just says, ah, 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 let's make sure that you do first things first. Deal with this. Come on, bored man. He's not saying there isn't sin. He's just saying we have sin Seeing our own sin or our own susceptibility towards sin cultivates humility in our hearts, melts contempt, and creates compassion. Because then Jesus says, then. Notice it doesn't stop. The last line says, then you will see clearly. To take the sawdust out of the eye. So, the sawdust is real. It's good for that speck to come out. But we've got our priorities out of whack. Then you will be able to see clearly. Can't see very clear like this. And he's saying, you've got to deal with the lenses through which you look in order to see clearly that which needs to be 
addressed. Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, says condemnation is the board in our eye. We cannot see clearly how to assist our brother or sister because we cannot see our brother and sister. And we will never know how to truly help him or her until we've grown into the kind of person who does not condemn. Getting the board out is not a matter of correcting something that is wrong in our life so that we will be able to condemn our dear ones better. See, we can only correct another person with the sure knowledge we could very well do the same thing or worse. And this is why we need community so desperately. This is why we take so much time and energy and effort to to launch city groups each semester and why we say it over and over again, you need to get in a city group, you got to get in a city group. Not just, it's, city groups are not, is not a numbers game. City group is a get your plank out of your own eye game. City groups help us see ourselves, not only the speck, but also the board. And we need each other to see our blind spots. We need each other to help us in the ways that we are looking at and thinking of other people and in the ways that we have things in our lives that we do not see. City groups also put us around people that we wouldn't normally find ourselves around. We might find ourselves in a group with somebody who wouldn't be our natural friend at choice or we wouldn't naturally be in community with them for whatever reason. But here we find ourselves in a group which sometimes is like, you know what, I don't like those people, I'm out. Which is the absolute wrong response to a city group. The reason is, is because we need people like that in our lives. We need people who are different in our lives. Because too often if they're not around us in close proximity, they're just out there. It's so easy to be able to just say and think things about them. Rather than sitting next to somebody and hearing their story and understanding the uniquenesses of their life, and understanding what they've been through, or understanding what their experiences are, or understanding how, 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 how they've been impacted by life, or impacted by, by others, or the pains, or the hurts, or the fears that they carry. Because when it's just them out there, it's easy to say, how could you do that? But when you sit next to somebody and you actually ask the question, tell me how you think that way. Or, or maybe it comes to the place where you could say, oh, I understand how you can think that way. Right? Because proximity cultivates compassion. And compassion gets fostered, cultivated with curiosity. Because curiosity kills contempt. And Jesus, and he says this in the fifth chapter of Matthew in the early parts of the Sermon on the Mount, where he's talking about rooting contempt out of our hearts. It's the passage where he says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, but I say to you, if you have contempt in your heart. So he, here he's coming back around the same idea. The Apostle Paul talks about the same idea about judgment in his letter to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 6. He says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, those who live by the Spirit, what he means is those who are spiritually mature should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, be self-aware, or you also may be tempted. 
Carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? The way of love. So what does Paul seem to be indicating here? That there are right people to help people. There are right people to to correct someone. And even in that, he even seems to offer a caution. If you even are the right person, you still need to be careful. Throughout my years as a pastor, I have found that the people who are most eager to tell others what to do or not to do or how they're wrong are often the worst people to talk to someone and the ones who need to take the longest look in the mirror. I see those who are eager to confront as a warning sign, but those who are humbly interested but hesitant in having a conversation rather than a confrontation are maybe the best people for the job. So, Throughout my years, I was a college pastor for 11 years. I've been leading Mill City uh, for almost another 11 years. My 22 years as in pastoral ministry, I've had lots and lots of conversations around issues of how do I talk to this person and, and what do I t- can I talk to that person and how do I confront this person and what about this issue as a parent to a child or, or, or to a friend or to a close friend or a roommate or all these types of, types of relational dynamics. And throughout the years, as I've had conversations with people, I, I've come up with a, a list of things that I think are helpful, a list of kind of a five questions that give us um, a filter to determine uh, if we are to talk with somebody. And the first one is, do I see them with humility and compassion? Refers to, have I taken the board out? Because if I haven't taken the board out of my eye, then I'm likely not able to talk with them with humility and compassion. Number two, are they a follower of Jesus? The scripture indicates that there is a different way or a different approach or posture towards somebody who is a follower of Jesus and someone who is not. Number three, is it my responsibility? Now, when I say it this way, what, I, what the, the meaning here is, Is it my role? In other words, as a parent, it is my role to talk to my kids. As an employer, it is your role and therefore your responsibility to to engage with one of your employees. There's maybe an authority structure or a title or role in place that puts that into your response area of responsibility. The next is, do I have depth of relationship? Now, I have four boys, and oftentimes what they will try to do is be each other's dad. My boys regularly say they have four dads. There are three brothers and me. And so they might say, thanks, dad, (laughs) to one of their brothers. If you're a parent, you know exactly. They just love to parent one another. It is not their role. It is not their responsibility. But the reality is, and especially as they grow older in life, dependent upon the depth of relationship they have will determine whether or not it is their job, if you will, or responsibility to approach them. Same thing can be true for friends. What is your depth of responsibility? What is the depth of relationship that leads to responsibility or not? Are you a close friend? Chances are it's your responsibility then to engage with them. Somebody who might be a friend, but the depth of of relationship isn't there, then the answer is no. And then lastly is, have I been invited? 
Have I been invited supersedes the other ones. You might be invited and have no depth of relationship and might not have a responsibility or a role. If you cannot answer yes to at least to, to, to at least one of the questions. Now, when I say that, they might be a follower of Jesus, but you not have depth of relationship or whatever. So, so you need to be able to answer yes to some of these questions. And if, you, if it's no to all of them, you don't say anything. Now, some of you are like, I don't know if I can't say anything. I see that. I need to make a comment on Facebook. I need to tell them. I need to make a statement about what is right and what is wrong and how dumb you are for believing that and posting that. Some of you are like, no, 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 I'm a peacekeeper. I just like, I'm happy to avoid any sort of conflict. Uh, that is not a problem. And others of you are like, it does. I just, uh, I gotta say something. Out of a sense of justice. Again, maybe motivated by the right things, but will be done in the wrong way. Or maybe it's just not for you to deal with. In the book of Job, if you're new to the Bible, it's in the middle of the Bible and it looks like the book of Job. And it's Job chapter 42. The book of Job is about a guy who has had horrible, horrible things happen in his life. And then the, uh, the vast majority of the book, Job, who loves God, is asking God, hey, why did this happen? And dialoguing with his friends. And finally God responds. And essentially God responds by saying, where were you when I created the world? And what he's basically saying is, so, so do you understand how I work? Or is there some parts of me that you not quite understand? And Job's response then to God's response is, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is, it that, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Job says, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. So if you go through that list of questions and the answer is no, then you know what a good response is that will set you free? You know what? That's just too wonderful for me. What do you think about that? I don't know. Too wonderful for me. They should do this. I don't know. Maybe. It's too wonderful for me. I don't have an opinion about that. You know what a wonderful thing that we should learn in our culture today? You know, I haven't formed an opinion about that. I don't know enough. It's just too wonderful for me. You might say, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Does that mean you don't care? No, no, no. What I'm saying is I trust God. Job is responding to say, oh, I didn't realize that God has bigger things and I'm not, I can't quite comprehend everything and I trust God and I trust him to do things without me. I think this is like master's level apprenticeship to Jesus, especially in our day. To come to the place of maturity, we can freely walk away and say, too wonderful for me. I trust God. Because otherwise what we end up doing is stepping into the place of God and trying to be the Holy Spirit, to be the convictor. What I have found, though, is anytime that I try to be the Holy Spirit, I end up usually acting like the enemy, Satan, the accuser. And we're not called to be the Holy Spirit. We're not called to be the enemy. We're called to trust the Holy Spirit and play the right role, not live in a place of 
of judgment and superiority, but in fact, respond to the invitation of Jesus to see people as he does, to treat them as he did. And we see this all throughout the Gospels. Jesus was Zacchaeus. He'd been stealing lots and lots of money as a tax collector. And he sees him up in a tree and he doesn't say, Zacchaeus, you get down here. I know what you've been doing. He says, Zacchaeus, let's eat. I'm coming to your house today. And at the end, Zacchaeus says, ah, my life has been changed. Actually, I'm going to pay all the money back four times. Kindness leads to repentance. Judgment does not. Jesus' interactions with Roman soldiers, Jesus' interactions with prostitutes, his interaction, his kindness, desire for redemption. Christina Cleveland in her book, Disunity in Christ, said, when I first began walking with Christ, I felt an immediate and authentic connection with any other Christian. Didn't matter what church they were in, we were family. But as I walked with Jesus, somehow my growth had been coupled with increasingly stronger opinions about the right way to be a follower. The way I saw it, there were two types of Christians, the wrong kind of Christian and the right kind of Christian. And I was happy to keep wrong Christians at bay. So I wonder if we can end today with a moment of personal reflection and confession to ask ourselves, who do I look down on? Who's the wrong Christian? Is it based on the way that they vote? The one who votes this way is the wrong Christian. The one who dresses this way is the wrong Christian. The one who has this particular theology is the wrong Christian. The one who spends their money in this way is the wrong Christian. The one who, who spends their time in this particular way is the wrong Christian. The one with this particular sexual orientation is the wrong Christian. Or maybe the condemnation is towards yourself. That the judgment goes inward. And Jesus calls you and me to not dehumanize anyone, including ourselves but to see people as he sees them. Our weekly practice, been around for a while, you know that our, we have a weekly practice for us to live into the reality of this, not just for it to stay in our heads. Our first part of that is confession, that we would be quick to confess. The scripture says that we are to confess to God that we might find forgiveness. And then in James, the book of James, it says that we are to confess our faults one to another. And so today, to start this practice of confession, we're just going to take a, a moment. If you would, if you want to, you can just open your hands like this as a symbol of opening your hearts towards God. And what I want you to do is take personal inventory. Maybe you need to take personal inventory of your insecurity, your fear, your loneliness, jealousy. Maybe it's personal inventory to, to see the different ways that maybe fallen into judgment, couched it in sarcasm, fallen into an embraced gossip. Groups of people that somehow you've labeled as unlovable. Will you open your heart towards God? Allow the Holy Spirit to search you, know you. Will you be 
quick to confess, to repent, turn your heart towards Him. Just take about 30 seconds or so. The music plays softly. people who are consistently practicing confession because confession cultivates humility. Confession causes us to look at ourselves in order therefore to see others in the way that we're supposed to see them. I pray that this isn't the only time that we can we are consistent throughout our weeks. I want to encourage you this week if you don't already have a consistent practice of confession, confession asking God Is there any way that's offensive or anxious in me? Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal those things to you. Maybe you're here today and maybe this is your first time in church. Maybe your first time in church in a long time. And maybe the way, reason you've stayed away from church is because you've not experienced the church to be a reflection of Jesus. You've just experienced it to be a a finger wagging. It's not the kindness of God. It's the condemnation and the finger pointing. It isn't that God doesn't have guidelines and standards for our lives. But the way he meets us matters. Jesus wasn't sent to the cross out of anger. He was sent to the cross and went to the cross out of love. He died because he loved the world so, so much, not because he was so angry at it and so had so much contempt in his heart towards it. If that was your experience of church or your experience of Christians, It's not an accurate reflection of the love of the Father. And the love of the Father says, come home. There's a story in Luke chapter 15 of the prodigal son who has just made a disaster of his life. And though he's made a disaster of his life and therefore marred the reputation of the Father and wasted money and impacted and destroyed relationships, as he comes home, the Father says, my boy is home. And God says to you today, my boy, my girl, Jesus home, come home, come home. I'm throwing a party because I welcome you with love. And if that's you, to respond to the invitation of the Holy Spirit today is to take a step of faith and receive the grace and the kindness of God expressed by Jesus on the cross in its fullness. Is to say under your breath, Jesus, I give you my life. I surrender my life to you. Because I want to experience the fullness of love and grace so that I can then express and extend the fullness of grace to others. It's not the only thing you need to say to God, but it's the most important thing to say to God, and it is the beginning of a relationship with God to make us more like Him. Jesus meets you exactly where you are. And for all of us here today, pray that we would live out the reality of the grace of God 
in our lives. I want to take a moment and pray for us all. Father, we need you. We trust you. God, I pray that we would be people that would be quick to confess that through that, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would cultivate humility in each one of us, that we would not be harsh, but we would be gentle, that we would not be self-righteous, but we would be self-aware, that you would cultivate humility in each one of us, that we would not be quick and eager, but instead hesitant but willing. I pray that you would make us spiritually mature so that we might helpfully, humbly, and with compassion help those around us. And that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would lead people into places of restoration and redemption. God, we pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Would you all stand with me?